makes the average citizen puke. Look at this system and say, yuck, you know, what's going on? I don't know about this man, except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come, invention, come. Hello and welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy and I'm joined here today by Steve Jeffries, Andy Palmer. And so on Grubstakers, we're continuing our look into the disaster of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, the uh, the nonprofit political group acronym and because it's, we're recording this before we have seen the New Hampshire results that have made that completely irrelevant. <laughs> yes, but which by the time you're hearing this are definitely real. We're, but, this is still real for us. Okay, <laughs> you can't laugh at this. Yeah, don't don't trivialize we're our still... reality <laughs> because Stephen's going on vacation and Yogi's getting married a second time. So we're yeah, I mean we're still picking through the wreckage of Iowa while you. Well, you folks are just living it up after <laughs> Bernie wins New Hampshire. Yeah, we're we're just black pilled, sifting through Iowa, uh, total Iowa brain, looking at what happened, looking at how they stole it. While you are all living in the world where he just won by ten points in New Hampshire, <laughs> and Nira Tandon just like put a fucking katana <laughs> through her chest on MSNBC. Jonathan Chait lit himself on fire outside of uh, Chapo Trap House's Brooklyn apartment. You, you all, you, you, the listener, live in a world we wish we could experience, but we are here in the like, past. This is like an unfortunate X Men Days of Futures past right now. We're just struggling to get on the right timeline. We wish we could live in that world, but unfortunately, right after we finish recording this, we have planned a group suicide, <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, we're very strict about making plans here on Grubstakers. Mm. This is our time capsule to you in the utopian future. Yogi still has to edit this. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're talking about, well, we wanted to talk about some of the billionaires uh, linked to uh, some of the shadowy Epstein-linked billionaires behind the uh, equally shadowy and equally Epstein-linked uh, Pete Buttigieg campaign for president. Um, but yeah, so we're talking uh, today specifically about Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman is the LinkedIn billionaire. Uh, he's uh, one of the main funders of the nonprofit political group Acronym, which uh, its subsidiary Shadow created the disastrous Iowa caucus vote counting app, which uh, crashed uh, spectacularly. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but but I just wanted to say with Reed Hoffman. You're dealing with a person who has poured tens of millions of dollars since 2016 into funding various uh, Democratic political groups like Indivisible, Run for Something. We'll kind of go through a partial list over 100 different groups. And this is a man who has really bought an equity stake. They were not trying with Run for Something, were they? (laughs) This is a man who has bought an equity stake in the Democratic Party. Politics, Popper. Fix our business situations. But it's just like these groups that are recruiting candidates 
for the Democrats or, you know, providing them with their web pages or whatever else the case may be. If Reed Hoffman, the Silicon Valley LinkedIn billionaire, if he's the one found funding that, then these candidates that he's recruiting are going to be influenced by and indebted to him. So it's a very insidious uh, connection. Reed Hoffman is one of the most insidious settlers of Catan players in the entire world. Uh, he's actually more of a Cards Against Humanity guy, <laughs> uh, as is evidenced by his creation of the game Settler Trumped Up Cards. Settler Colonialists of Catan. This is this is not. Uh, I I want to do a your Kickstarter sucks crossover. Had I known about this, <laughs> I would have pitched it to them because uh, for those of you who listen to that show, you already know uh, a good third of their episodes they have a Cards Against Humanity ripoff and. Um, that someone makes on Kickstarter and Reed Hoffman is a contributor to that. He didn't use a Kickstarter, but he made trumped up cards. This is a game. Democracy isn't (laughs) a reality TV star in the white house. If you're ready to laugh liberally in the wake of this unprecedented outcome, then grab a copy of what many people are calling the world's biggest deck. Uh, Um, good and well okay so here here's an example it's basically you know apples to apples rules as all these games are so someone puts down a card that says what's the biggest threat facing america crying babies unreleased tax returns day 293 of the trump presidency we're probably we're definitely we're way way past that aren't we we're in day like a thousand uh tom brady's underinflated balls that semi-obscene trump pence logo uh, all this and more can be yours. You can't, they don't show all the cards on their website, even though it's for charity, you have to pay to see them. Uh, you can also this be the biggest buzzkill at a party to play this. <laughs> there are also three expansion packs God. for this game. <laughs> I heard Trump's approval ratings went up 10 points when this came out. <laughs> this came out right before the election. So I think we can safely blame it. <laughs> on the game he actually the uh he went on the the daily show to unveil this game uh let's he here he is at uh talking about how how his friends thought it was so funny it's called trumped up cards and it's a game of just dissing trump basically (laughs) why why would you do this well because you realize if he becomes president you're dead (laughs) yes uh, I am aware of that. Uh, I first made it for friends because uh, yeah. I thought it would be hilarious. Right? Yeah. And he was right. <laughs> What's funny is he he talks about uh, uh, real billionaire mindset here because he's like, I made it for friends. Clearly, he, even even though I'm sure someone of his caliber could write this mm-hmm. stuff, he clearly did not make it. He bought a group of graphic designers to make it. And, you know, some writers who may have gotten laid off from cards against humanity i can see him writing them i was gonna Maybe. say yeah i was gonna say like that that's the real sucker's path is trying to be a comedy writer when what you should do is just become a billionaire and then nobody will tell you your shit is not funny a party game for people with big hands there are like at least a hundred people whose job is to pretend reed hoffman is funny 
Just like, yes, this, like, just laugh way <laughs> over enthusiastically when he when, bumps out, busts out the trump card game. Official when, rules. One, first, all players must thoroughly sanitize their hands with Purell. Oh, my God. Then they should pledge their loyalty to trumped up cards, the world's biggest deck, by raising their right hands and saying, believe me, folks, this deck is so huge, you won't believe it. People all over the world are talking about it. My Trump's just a Seinfeld. Um... <laughs> Then each player draws 10 very clean white cards. Then the player with the greatest net worth begins as the card evaluating officer, CEO. I'm, I'm going to spare the listeners the rest of the rules. Oh, wait, no. Rule four. The CEO must say, I'm really rich and make a dismissive hand gesture. Apparently, Reed Hoffman does like get togethers with his friends where they play Settlers of Catan. And could you just imagine it's more of a hostage situation? <laughs> could you just imagine how pissed you would be if you went to go play Catan and he busts this shit out and is like making everybody play? And then you have to lose to him. <laughs> you have to be a worse settler than he is. <laughs> this is very illustrative because this is a man who owns a large chunk of today's Democratic Party. You know, when we talk about Reed uh, Hoffman, and I think this is kind of a guiding light of our podcast, is that you talk about the politicians, and then you talk about the billionaires who are the people who own the politicians, and it's worthwhile to understand how they think, what goes through their heads. And Reed Hoffman is a guy who, again, owns a large chunk of the Democratic Party, and he has kind of like liberal, uh, really bad daily show sense of humor, plus entrepreneur brain. And this oh, yeah, is a he's guiding been on light. the really bad Daily Show twice now. <laughs> At <laughs> least. I didn't bother to look into... I just know he's been on twice because I was like, does he really talk about trumped up cards on the Daily Show? And then I clicked on a video and it was the wrong video. And that's how I know he's, he's been there twice. But like, yeah, so if this is the guy providing the money or much of the money for Indivisible, Run for Something, all these other groups, Acronym, Shadow, uh, you have to imagine that the sort of establishment Democratic Party will reflect his point of view and his way of looking at the world, which might explain, you know, uh, some of the Trump Russia stuff, some of the uh, Mueller baby, all the kind of mainstream liberal stuff. He very much seems to embody it and fund it. Um, and I actually wanted to just kind of start before we even go through, you know, the biography here. Uh, there's a, a very great New Yorker profile uh, of him written in, in 2015. Uh, it's called The Network Man uh, by Nicholas Lehman. Uh, but I wanted to just start with a quote from it. Uh, when I say he has entrepreneur brain. I'm tepid as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> When I say his entrepreneur brain, according to this profile, he sometimes asks people, what's your tribe? And he says his tribe is, quote, entrepreneur. Um, and then quoting from the profile, he says, I think our religion is entrepreneurship. He calls himself a mystical atheist, but he says that he is deeply engaged in religious questions. The world he has created around him has elaborate customs and rituals, and it has something to say about every part of life and every major issue. Not long ago, Hoffman worked... Child sacrifice. <laughs> Not long ago, Hoffman worked with a branding company to devise a system of 28 images. They look like the petroglyphs at ancient Native American sites in the, in the West. Ritual castration. One for each essential human virtue and one for Hoffman's initials. Hoffman <laughs> shares the meaning of the images with members of his tribe. Unquote. Um, would it surprise you as Andy Midsommar was... Midsommar deflowering. 
as Andy was alluding to, he's the person, Reed Hoffman is, who invited Jeffrey Epstein to a 2015 Palo Alto dinner at which uh, Peter Thiel, Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk also attended. Uh, And at this dinner, uh, according to press reports, Elon Musk introduced Jeffrey Epstein to Mark Zuckerberg. Sean did a road comic swig of beer after that, like it was his big punchline. And we will get more into all these connections, but it's just the kind of thing that it really blows your mind that this is a guy who is a a major part of of the Democratic Party and seems to be uh, funding so much of what we just saw go wrong in uh, in Iowa. He's the type of dark money that Pete Buttigieg, if he had any honesty would actually be railing against instead of the dark money in scare quotes Mm -hmm. that is like our revolution or dsa today he literally called it black money (laughs) yeah he did excellently call it black money once why is it gonna be black (laughs) (laughs) uh but according to forbes as of february 2020 reed hoffman's worth about 1.9 billion dollars uh he co-founded linkedin in 2003 they sold it to microsoft in 2016 for about 26.2 billion um What's really funny about that is he's he's they sold it for twenty six billion. He's one of the founders of LinkedIn, and he walked away from that deal with he has one point five billion. He clearly walked away from that deal with less money from Microsoft than Notch the Minecraft guy. <laughs> it is weird. Like I think I think in the past Reed Hoffman was at like three or four billion, and I I don't have exact. I don't think anybody has exact numbers on how much he's dumped into the Democratic Party. And then he came up with trumped up cards. (laughs) Trumped up cards took a lot of money. (laughs) That was half of his net worth. 20 of the best people to work on it. Just like once you have a billionaire who just doesn't know anybody who's not a billionaire, you can just be like, yeah, graphic design, that's like 10 million. I'm hiring graphic design from the Ivy League. So prestigious. No one's heard of it except the ultra rich and you have to pay them 500 million each. Um, but yeah, and so, you know, he's, he sold LinkedIn to Microsoft and now he kind of works primarily on this, uh, Silicon Valley venture capital fund called Greylock Partners. Um, Greylock Partners was one of the first investors in Airbnb. Apparently he's invested in Twitch and some other, uh, uh, startups. He's the guy who introduced Mark Zuckerberg to Peter Thiel, which was how Facebook got their initial startup capital. So he's like really plugged into Justin Timberlake. Uh, Silicon Valley, and you you have to imagine that when, uh, according to Tara McGowan, who's again the uh, uh, person who founded Acronym, which created Shadow, which created this... Who had nothing to do with Shadow. Yeah. <laughs> which she cre- met Shadow once at a party <laughs> and doesn't even remember Shadow. Uh, uh, which, uh, yeah, uh, did this Iowa voting app. Tara McGowan told Politico in 2019 that Hoffman, quote, took a chance on acronym, unquote, in, I believe, 2018. And so because he's such a plugged-in Silicon Valley guy, once he puts money in, a bunch of other people follow. So it, it's very influential for how these various uh, shadowy Democratic uh, organizations are able to get $75 million as he puts his little stamp on it. Um but I guess before we even start the biography, I wanted to just spend five minutes talking about uh, his political network, which is called Investing in Us, like capital U.S. So it's like investing in the U.S. or investing in us, however you want to uh, want to do it. Sounds like Investing some, in not, not me, us. This sounds like some Koch brothers it's, level stuff. Yeah. It's, just for centrist Democrats. 
Right. Like, uh, apparently, I forget the profile, but there's a profile of him where uh, he recounts that a friend told him he should become the Koch brothers for the left. And he said he bristled at that, uh, not because of the Koch brothers comparison, but because he's not on the left. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he is kind of like a centrist entrepreneur type guy. But this is very much, like you were saying, what, what's happened here, because... He, uh, you know, was a big Obama backer. He was kind of disappointed with politics, but he was, you know, supposedly, he says, horrified by Donald Trump. And that's where uh, investing in us, his political action group, came to be. And uh, At least he's honest about not being on the left and not on that, like, uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, <laughs> mes- mescaline, I'm actually the realist socialist there is bullshit. Right. Karl Marx loved capitalism mm-hmm. is uh, the Elon Musk quote. Uh, and also my brother met his girlfriend through Jeffrey Epstein is the other Elon Musk quote. Elon is cyberpunk. Just so we're clear. <laughs> he can't think beyond the capitalist horizon. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to start with uh, Max Blumenthal in The Gray Zone wrote a good piece uh, talking a little bit about this group investing in us. And then again, this is Reid Hoffman's political action group. This has invested tens of millions of dollars in various uh, Democratic affiliated startup groups. But so uh, Max Blumenthal kind of goes through. He says, uh, to run Investing in Us on a day-to-day basis, Hoffman tapped a guy named uh, Dimitri Melhorn, uh, who's a venture capitalist and political strategist. He's a former McKinsey guy. Uh, He graduated the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Uh, He worked as a COO at uh, Michelle Rhee's charter school group, Students First, in the D.C. area. And then I'll just quote this. According to uh, Dimitri Melhorn's bio, he sits on the board of the American Prison Data Systems, a company that claims to reduce recidivism by giving prisoners tablets to study coding for five hours a day. Uh, so this is the guy. Wait, that, he's teaching prisoners to code? Yes. And uh, would you be surprised that Reed Hoffman is also an investor in the group uh, Code for America? What the fuck are yes. prisoners coding? Like, are they trying to... Are they, are they trying to... I mean, they're probably doing QA is what... <laughs> it, first since huh? an hour... Yeah, for since it, I yeah. mean that's that's definitely some race to the bottom shit where it's like we, you know the Cody. people talk about how the uh, learn to code shit is really for these Silicon Valley vampires to try to make coding so ubiquitous that um, yeah, people who wages. code yeah lowers yeah. wages and it seems like in this case they're just cutting to the chase and like just going straight to prison slavery. Yeah, this oh, is probably like an app that someone dreamed up. To like match up prisoners who want to yeah, learn to code. Teach, yeah, teach and prisoners to code. then you get to them code. to QA for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jason, I don't know if your parole officer would approve of you trying to unionize. <laughs> maybe maybe we should let him uh, uh, know and uh, check for a random drug yeah. test there, Jason. We've actually partnered with the commissary <laughs> so that they can get an extra bag of chips a week. But he's, yeah, so, I mean, this is just like a McKinsey, Harvard Kennedy School of Government guy who's, uh, you know, giving prisoners tablets to learn to code. Um, and they there's an article in Vanity Fair in 2019 called the... You know who they're not giving tablets? Uh, Chelsea Manning. Okay. Like, uh, that's so... They're, like, they're, they're doing this thing where they're like, well, we're teaching prisoners to code. They're not allowed on the internet. And they'll get put in solitary if they talk to journalists on the phone. But no, they at least they can learn to code. Yeah, they can't even go to GitHub. Yeah, yeah, they can't go to GitHub. <laughs> 
but so there's a Vanity Fair article from... Uh, and they can't use Stack Exchange. How are you teaching people to code without Stack Exchange? <laughs> Good point. Like that's... I, I tried to learn from just books. That's a nightmare. I can't. No Google? No Stack Exchange? Yeah. That's no way to learn. No. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a Vanity Fair article uh, about investing in us. Uh, and it's the title is, this is from April 2019. It's called The Left's Capital Arm of the Resistance, unquote. LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman is spending hundreds of millions to growth hack democracy. This is the headline of the article. And uh, they interview Dimitri Melhorn, again, this McKinsey guy who's running Reid Hoffman's organization. Again, very legit objective there. <laughs> growth hack democracy. <laughs> but again, like this guy has permanent entrepreneur brain you now, can't conceive but we, have, we don't have a choice of whether or not to listen to him <laughs> yes uh, oh, i'm sure he has like his own elevator pitch on how like well the russians hacked our election but we're trying to do the good kind of hacking but uh from this vanity fair profile in early 2017 after trump was elected of course uh, dimitri melhorn sent hoffman a 10-page memo laying out his fears that the norms of the enlightenment era the rule of law respect for people as people basic belief in the scientific method unquote the transatlantic slave trade faced an existential threat in trump the manifesto was eventually translated into a more traditional pitch deck for potential investors written in their native silicon valley argot flow charts explaining the quote-unquote flat fascist playbook charts detailing the asymmetrics of republican versus democratic messaging analyses of the current socio-political ec- ecosystem from unengaged centrist to neo-nazis and racists and proposals on how to rapidly engage untapped electoral markets um, and so you can like see like this is exactly where people like Tara McGowan, the acronym CEO, come in, where it's just like you put together these fucking pitch decks for these Silicon Valley VC freaks. You can get yourself 75 million or 10 million or however much money you want from them. You just speak their language and act like, yeah, we're going to growth hack democracy. Some of that actually Maybe we should put down the microphones and uh, find a better find a new way to make some money. <laughs> Some of that actually sounded like somewhat promising. Like I actually would like to see a huge deck be presented on the fascist playbook as we understand it. Mm-hmm. But in his hands, like is he really the most trusted person to give that presentation? <laughs> Right. Well, and the article continues. Dimitri Malhorn said uh, the answer was a political investment company that could mimic the tactics of a Silicon Valley seed fund, allocating small amounts of capital to innumerable founders with crazy ideas, then sitting back to see which ones worked. There was no risk capital or growth capital arm of the resistance. So that is what we've tried to build, Melhorn told me. Um, and, you know, and then in terms of what that implies, it says we're backing founders, people of big, potentially game-changing ideas. Uh, and he, he, they, uh, they talk about it's enormous... Keep in mind, this is uh, the man behind LinkedIn, the resume website. <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, uh, investing, it's all about building connections. Investing in us has an enormous, diverse portfolio of companies, nonprofits, and activist groups, including including Higher Ground Labs, a tech accelerator that helps companies build campaign software for progressives, Run for Something, which recruits candidates and helps them run for office, and Indivisible, a voter action group whose founders were recently named for Times 100 list. There's also Stand Up Republic, which ran ads against Roy Moore in the 2017 Alabama special election. Woke Vote, aimed at mobilizing African-American voters— 
the People's House Project, and the Arena. Or- How's that working out with the <laughs> Buttigieg campaign? <laughs> and the Arena, organizations devoted to finding and trading candidates and staffers, and Integrity First for America, which filed lawsuits against the white nationalists involved in Charlottesville. Um, and they say, all told, they have directly invested Hoffman and Melhorn in a hundred different groups groups and efforts and then indirectly they've invested in hundreds more through companies like the higher ground accelerator and recruited thousands of candidates through organizations like run for something and it worked they stopped fascism (laughs) (laughs) but it's just like you know and this article talks about essentially reed hoffman's network because he's spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this thing becoming potentially supplanting the Democratic National Committee. Like, they have some DNC staffers on backgrounds who are, like, welcoming his money, but kind of nervous about the fact that he's not just giving to it to them, he's using it independently. So you can see how pernicious this is, where... Well, yeah, I mean, you have to be immediately suspicious of this because the main takeaway from... Uh, the Silicon Valley crowd of the last couple decades is they're not exactly great at inventing things on their own. Like it's, it's public knowledge. And, you know, we've certainly driven the point home that everything that they've made is really a collection of other technologies um, that were mostly made either from government funding or in various nonprofit contexts that were co-opted or like, or universities that were co-opted to make money. And so what these people are good at doing is not innovating, which is, you know, their own pitch for themselves, but they're good at um, taking existing systems and making themselves money. And so it, it seems like from the outside that, that is what's going on here is he's, you know, uh, it, or at least that's, that's what you should probably, how you should look at this um, uh, when he says these things that we're trying to innovate and create innovative solutions for elections. It's more of, well, no, you're trying to pump your own money into an existing system so that you can use it to make yourself more money. Uh, right. And, you know, that's uh, it is briefly gestured at in the article that there are some concerns about all the uh, data privacy scandals uh, involving Silicon Valley tech billionaires. And we will briefly mention, you know, LinkedIn has these concerns where the other thing is, you know, if he's funding all these organizations that are... Ter- <laughs> that are turning out voters, that are recruiting candidates for higher office, and also, you know, putting their traditional voter profiles together, he can absolutely use that to make money off it. There's actually an article that came out recently that ICE is um, buying user data from different games that track people's locations. Oh, my God. Um, And they don't need a warrant because they're just buying private data. And so, and then they're using that to track people down. Hmm. It's also worth noting that Leon... uh, Steven's cat is attacking his own tail right now, and it's very adorable. It's attached to your body. <laughs> like, you don't need to be doing that. He's going to town on it. He's finding an innovative solution. I'm he's, innovating. He's growth hacking his <laughs> yeah. tail. It's about blitz. What was it? Blitz scaling. Yes, yeah, Reed Hoffman. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we will talk about it. But Reed Hoffman's wrote a bunch of, like, fucking entrepreneur books, and we could spend the entire hour going through all of this guy's entrepreneur brain, Blitzscaling is about how like startups have to, you know, use Blitzkrieg to fucking become <laughs> big like Airbnb did even before they can make money or even before they're like good. Einstein's and- group investing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like if Eric von Manstein could see what his sickle cut through the Ardennes forest was being used for today, <laughs> he would be ashamed. Final business solutions. <laughs> Uh, but I guess I wanted to kind of start the chronological biography and then we'll go through some of the, the scandals. When we talk about Reed Hoffman, um, 
the best profile, and again, I really do recommend people read this, the, the New Yorker profile from 2015. It's called The Network Man uh, by Nicholas Lehman, and um, it begins, I'll just read the first paragraph for you. Early on a Monday evening in June, Reed Hoffman, the founder and executive chairman of the business-oriented networking site LinkedIn, met Mark Pincus, the founder and chief executive of the gaming site Zenga, for dinner at a casual restaurant in Portolo Valley, California. Didn't Zenga make Farmville? I think so, yes. Uh, uh, Mark Pincus is also a billionaire, uh, so future episode. Uh, the the it's uh, they they have dinner in this wealthy residential town at the western edge of Silicon Valley. Breakfasts and dinners are a big part of Hoffman's life, which I just wanted to say is the most New Yorker way of calling somebody fat, <laughs> because they go through how he has all of these breakfast and uh, lunch and dinner meetings basically all day, and uh, yes, he's a pretty portly fellow. Uh, but I just like that this inner this meeting with Mark Pincus. Uh, again, the Zanga billionaire. Uh, this is in 2015. This is before Trump was elected. Mark, it's another example of someone just finding a way to make um, Sim Farm as profitable as possible. <laughs> like, what if we made Sim Farm, but you bug all of your relatives to play it, and you have to pay real money? <laughs> well, here's why I'm excited for our inevitable Mark Pankus episode because just like so, the the New Yorker profile talks about how Reed Hoffman has all these you know lunch, uh, breakfast, dinner meetings with various people, and he always brings like the, an ideas list to the meeting. Like he brings a list of things to talk about, and then he starts the meeting by asking them for their list of things they want to talk about at this meeting. Uh, and so Mark Pankus, again the uh, Zanga Farmville billionaire, uh, he says this is 2015 before Trump is elected. His idea is quote. In this election, we'd want a million people to raise one billion dollars to run Mike Bloomberg for president, unquote. Uh, He says, through Kickstarter, say the minimum is five hundred dollars. I think he'd be the best. It'd be pretty cool. That would change politics forever. And then he talks about. You know what? I really need to. It would. (laughs) For the worse. (laughs) I really need to follow up with Mike Hale. Your Kickstarter sucks. Let's raise a billion dollars for the guy who has $40 billion. So he goes on. He talks about this uh, massive multiplayer online game called Star Citizen, which through crowdfunding brought in some $80 million to finance further game development. And he says that could a similar model could work for the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. You know that game that we all know and play, Star Citizen, <laughs> that certainly got finished? <laughs> And he says about it, quote, because what else would you do with $80 million <laughs> that you got through a largely there, unaccountable crowdfunding website? He's like, let's use a million in seed capital to create a guild on Eve online. <laughs> and then let's steal from the other guilds until we get a billion dollars. And we can to give it to Bloomberg. Uh, what, was, what was the name of that game? A star citizen. How much money did they raise? Apparently, they raised $80 million. I'm guessing they raised $5 million and then like uh, put $80 million in so that they could make it over the threshold before <laughs> their time expired. But, I mean, like again, these are two billionaires having lunch on the political solution to America, and this is how they think this country is operating, that there is a grassroots demand to raise $1 billion for Mike Bloomberg to run for president. <laughs> Who should we give a billion dollars to? Oh, I know. The person who brutally cracked down on the Occupy movement. You know who needs all that money for, uh, who needs a billion dollars to run for president? The guy with 60 of it. 
Well, and this is just like, so uh, Mark Pincus says, quote, a million people give a thousand dollars a piece. I believe there's a million people who'd like to give a fuck you to both political parties. And it's like, uh, and there's actually way more than that. And they're all <laughs> donating uh, $18 to Bernie Sanders. And that's exactly it. It's like, you're so close, but you're just in like this Silicon Valley billionaire brain where you think the people want Mike Bloomberg. And, you know, these are the people who are controlling the, let's call it the business wing of the Democratic Party right now. I don't think he actually thinks that people want Mike Bloomberg or else he wouldn't suggest that people raise a billion dollars for Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> Why do you have to raise any money for Mike Bloomberg? I mean, like, that, his other billionaire friend just never even questioned him about that. And it's also just the guy who, like, costs money to speak in public. Like he's he's so uncharismatic. Yeah, he did that qualified. It's for the a debate. financial hit to talk in public for him. Qualified for the debate, debate, but didn't show up. Yeah, yeah. Like the every time he gives a speech, the investing website long uh, odds get longer for him. <laughs> um, but you know, and this is just all. All of this is kind of background to give you an idea of who these people are and what is going on with the people who own the Democratic Party. And, you know, to go from the same New Yorker profile to talk about Reed Hoffman, he was born in 1967 during the Summer of Love at Stanford Hospital in Palo Alto. His father was attending law school at Stanford University. Uh, Bill Hoffman, uh, his grandfather, was a Los Angeles newspaper man who wrote a series of pulp westerns with titles like Gun Gospel and Law of the Lash. Um, his mother... His dad definitely went to Stanford to fuck. <laughs> Well, yes. Uh, Hoffman's mother, Deanna uh, Ruth Rudder, grew up in Silicon Valley and also became a lawyer. So both of his parents were uh, lawyers. They had like a summer of love fling and they conceived him and they divorced or they didn't stick together. So he was raised uh, with, uh, you know, separated parents. Oh, yeah. They, they married and promptly separated, leaving Hoffman the only child of estranged parents who were still in their early 20s. And... Um, he was uh, brought up initially by his mother in California. Uh, then he went back to his father. Uh, he says he's been told through relatives that he was tear gassed as a child at demonstrations. Again, this is born 67, summer of love, maybe early, uh, late Vietnam War stuff. Mm. They were protesting. That's what he says anyways. Um, but his father, according to the same New Yorker profile, worked for the federal war on poverty in its dying days. And with the I'm black, not, I never heard for someone getting so much less cool <laughs> so quickly, so early in life. This is like some Jim Simons level. Well, just like this thing about his father, I mean, really sums up the 60s. Like, it sounds like as a baby, he was dropping acid and going to Woodstock. <laughs> And then he turned five and he's like, I got to button up and get a job. Someone who lies about that so brazenly is also like, at least a little bit cool. Yeah. He was, he was protesting war, but then he thought, you know what's better? Settlers of Catan. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's better? Ironic card games about the president. Yeah, there's no wars in Settlers of Catan. You just stick your road in front of someone else's road. But uh, from and the you, you and a ser you and other wealthy settlers get to a totally unexplored, not inhabited land. Yeah, no, there's no one already. No one's there. already there. Yeah, this is we're just settlers. This is a wild frontier. No violence whatsoever. You all you trade things. Maybe you get drunk and get in an argument with your family, but that's about it. <laughs> they should release the uh, disease patch for settlers of Catan. 
where it's like the board is full and you have to clear it out and then you can settle Catan. <laughs> There's an add-on where people people are already there. You can't settle <laughs> until you you do something about them. You know there probably is some well, I don't know. There's a lot of expansions. <laughs> People are like complaining on the Reddit, like they need to nerf blankets because I keep trading for them and all my citizens are getting decimated. (laughs) But the New Yorker profile uh, just sums up the 60s here. Uh, It says, quote, his father, Reed Hoffman's father, worked for the federal war on poverty in its dying days and with the Black Panthers and other radical clients, though he wound up a conventional business lawyer. So he had like wah, wah. Yeah, some sort of radical-ish parents for a time. Who, some would argue that he continued the war on poverty. <laughs> uh, his, and his son continues that fight to this day. He had a, rat- a guerrilla warfare. Yeah. He doesn't even know the war has ended. <laughs> uh, he, had, uh, he had radical-ish parents who both sold out and became, you know, lawyers, corporate lawyers, and they were able to send him to a private boarding school. So this is, you know, how Reed Hoffman grows up. He grows up very affluent in uh, in Silicon Valley. And he talks about, you know, in middle school, he was big. I in- mean, at that time, it was still vacuum tube valley. Uh, he was big into, like, Dungeons and Dragons. Apparently, from the age of nine, he, p- he played Dungeons and Dragons. There was another independent game company called Chaosium, which had an office in a neighboring city, and it invited him to come, like, beta test its products, and they even, like, paid him some money to help uh, beta test their little new game. If you try to clown on him for this, Sean, I am totally bringing up your giant binders of Magic the Gathering cards. I have nothing but respect for my <laughs> D&D playing brethren. This is not why we have an issue with Reed Hoffman. But solidarity from the Planeswalkers. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, and this kind of, like, I guess he... he to this day, likes D&D, likes Settlers of Catan, and this is partly why he wanted to make a card game about Donald Trump. He, he just likes this kind of bullshit, which, nothing wrong with it, but he says it, you know, informs his life outlook, and he always talks about, not always, but he sometimes talks about how it gives him the skills to do entrepreneurship bullshit, which, really not what Dungeons & Dragons was attend- intended for, you know, uh, having better growth of your fucking Airbnb startup was not what the designers of the Paladin had in mind. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, what's his alignment anyway? <laughs> lawful evil. He, yeah, probably lawful evil. In fact, I think most billionaires probably would be. Yeah, because they write the law. I guess Epstein would be chaotic evil. I would like the no. He's he's still lawful evil because he operates within the um uh like yeah or at least within the framework of the state. He still showed deference. I guess to he doesn't work within the frameworks case. of the law, but he works within the framework of the state. But like John McAfee would be chaotic neutral. <laughs> he... <laughs> chaotic <laughs> neutral to evil. Let's not forget that like ra- other... he, he he's raped and killed allegedly. <laughs> We're, go- you know, we're going to publish an alignment chart for the billionaires covered by grub stickers at some point. Chaotic neutrals can rape and murder as a treat. He's probably the uh, richest person to block me. And all I did was ask if he paid $5,000 to have his neighbor murdered. The funniest idea... It, oh, not the funniest, but one of the funniest ideas Andy came up with online is uh, John McAfee was having a contest to make a photoshopped 
make memes for his presidential run and Andy was submitting memes with uh, the face of the neighbor he murdered photoshopped into the background <laughs> in the hopes that he would retru- retweet it without knowing and then this was only interrupted by him having to flee the federal government <laughs> yeah. yeah that that the little experiment got cut short by literally the uh, FBI <laughs> and possibly the CIA those guys knew it's- those guys know how to ruin a good time, if we have learned one thing about the Epstein Network. But so, yeah, Reed Hoffman is like a nerd. He's playing Dungeons and Dragons. But then he goes to a private boarding school um, in Vermont, the Putney School, uh, which is like a progressive boarding school in Vermont. And, and I just wanted to play uh, just a short clip from... Um, there's this uh, kind of ass-kissy CNBC documentary series called The Brave Ones, where they profile different entrepreneurs. You can watch it on YouTube if you're curious. But uh, just a short little drop of Reed Hoffman talking about the worst experience of his life. Overcome challenges, overcome difficulty. The first year of boarding school was probably one of the hardest years of my life. So we talk about the billionaire struggle story. And uh, being bullied at boarding school really takes the cake. I mean, looking at his childhood, a lot of that was probably because he had the DTs. Uh, but yeah, this is off in the Vermont countryside. Yes, somewhere in Vermont. Apparently, they learned how to like milk cows and that kind of stuff. It was what? like a weird boarding school. But he says he was bullied oh. there. Yeah, I like, he said milk cows. No, yes, <laughs> no, that. Uh, that that's uh, that's that's more of his. Uh, we'll get to that uh, yeah. when we talk about the Bilderberg Group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, he talks about getting bullied there, and apparently he like learned. He, he says he tells the New Yorker he l- used logic to solve the problem. The way you deal with bullies is you change the economic equation. You make it more expensive for them to hassle you. He said he went to the chief bully and said, "If you bu- continue to to bully me, quote, I will break everything you own." Unquote, and then he stopped. So that is how he said that being bullied taught him a uh, business sense, putting financial disincentives on. Uh, he like talked to the bully's <laughs> manager. That's like, it's like saying you know the the real way you stop a bully is you you just throw up on them or you just <laughs> you just shit yourself when they start bully. They'll stop bullying you right away. And he's like, yeah, you know, I stopped a bully by being insane. Yeah, all you gotta do is just humiliate yourself in front of the bully and everyone else. Yeah, I'm just imagining like the private Vermont boarding school bullies who are like, uh, nerd, paladin is the worst character alignment. <laughs> I can see him playing as paladin and do law- lawful good as a kid. He's a healer. He didn't go with his original idea of making a card game about his bully. <laughs> yeah, he he really learned how to deal with bullies from his experience. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so he goes to this private boarding school in Vermont, and this is all just to show the worst experience of his life is going to boarding school. So he's clearly not a self-made billionaire. He grows up rich, two well-to-do lawyers as parents. Um, he goes to Stanford University in 1989. He enrolled in a new major called Symbolic Systems, which is a combination of philosophy, linguistics, psychology, and computer science. Uh, he met his wife, Michelle Yee, at Stanford. Uh, he also so met- he majored in nothing. Yeah, so it's a way to do CS with more fluff courses. He majored in good vibes. 
He even said that uh, the computer science majors at Stanford would uh, make fun of him and call his major CS Lite because <laughs> it like has less computer science classes than a typical CS major, basically. Um, yeah. He, he met his wife. He met Peter Thiel, who will become important, the uh, PayPal founder. Um, and uh, then Hoffman, after Stanford, he goes. He originally wants to be a philosopher. Apparently, he gets a, a master's in philosophy at Oxford on a Marshall scholarship. He spends three years studying at Oxford University, um, and uh, he claims that he says he originally wanted to be like a public intellectual. But then he says he saw you know these professors at Oxford who would publish books that only fifty people read, and he thought by by software he could influence decided, the world decided much to be more. A private intellectual yes he thought that you know by going into software or business he could influence the world much more than by being you know a philosopher or public intellectual or whatever else um and then in the 1990s he returned from oxford uh to uh california uh he met up uh with his uh, by this point good friend peter Thiel, and peter Thiel's important because you know hoffman is he works for apple uh in i believe 1997 or 96, around that time, uh, in the uh, the mid-90s when Apple's not doing so hot, you know, after Steve Jobs gets kicked out, uh, he's, uh, he's working for Apple on something called eWorld, which is an early internet, um, one of the early kind of social networking si- style sites. It doesn't really go anywhere because Apple's in free fall at this point. This is probably 96, 97, around this time. Uh, it says in 1997, the New Yorker profile says, uh, he started his own company called SocialNet, which created a way for people to connect with each I other. Remember those years when they were when Apple was basically just delivering old computing devices to schools by the truckload. Like Apple was in such a shitty place that like uh, they were the computers used in public schools. Oh uh, yeah, my elementary school. Mine too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and so according to the New Yorker profile, according to the New Yorker profile, he works at Worlds Away, a quote, virtual chat community owned by Fujitsu, um, around 96, 97, um, users interacted through fictionalized graphic representations of themselves. So kind of the point is like, he's working at these very early social media ish networks where people don't really quite understand the internet where people might want to connect with their real names, real Sounds whatever. Sounds like he made like a shitty cross between a message board and the Sims. <laughs> uh, but yes, he does start his own company in 97, uh, Social Net, which created a way for people to connect with each other for various purposes, mainly dating using pseudonyms. Social Net was soon acquired for a modest sum by a company called Spark Networks, which now owns the religious dating sites JDate and Christian Mingle. So he does manage to sell his company kind of early on and make a little bit of money doing that. I had, I did not know that those were owned by the same company. <laughs> and sense. there's something very weird about that to me. They have a monopoly on the Abrahamic, Abrahamic, <laughs> yeah, religious dating sites. I think there's a Muslim one too. The the kind of dating sites where you really have to spend a lot on the first date to hope anything's going to happen there. What? There's like. Isn't people are already like innovating on IRC at this point, doing all this stuff? Yeah. Oh no, this is like, yeah, this is late IRC, early like message yeah, like board. IRC is already doing social net sort of. Well, he's he's clearly trying to profit, so he's trying to like put it under like a brand. Right. Um, that's like when we talk about the geniuses of Silicon Valley. It's just the people who stole from IRC groups and uh, hacker clubs. 
are the yeah. ones who are considered the founding geniuses of Silicon Valley. <laughs> and we're like, what if we charge people for this and <laughs> use government patent law to uh, uh, have a monopoly on this? What's the underlying would, framework <laughs> of uh, Mac OS? Unix. <laughs> I was having fun on IRC, but I realized I'm not making any money from this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but so, yes, yeah, so he uh, he sells his little uh, fake dating pseudonym site and um, he joins PayPal. And uh, we did an episode on Peter Thiel. I would recommend it. But just a brief recap. PayPal was founded by Peter Thiel with, quote, one million from friends and family. LLC. Which might have included some money from uh, his father. Peter Thiel's father was a German chemical engineer who worked in Namibia, uh, uh, Nambia and apartheid era South Africa. So uh, the the thing that connects the PayPal mafia is uh, apartheid South Africa money. Uh, you know what? I don't think they own the Muslim dating app. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it's someone else. All, all the board <laughs> meetings are like terrified charts about how the Muslim dating app is going to take over the Christian <laughs> dating app. <laughs> they're having too many babies and they're joining our dating app. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, Reed Hoffman, he sells his dating site in 1997. He sells social net, or in 1999, he sells social net, and he goes on to work for PayPal. And um, he he works for PayPal in 1999. Uh, uh, Peter Thiel calls uh, calls him like a firefighter. He he uh, puts out these various fires. He like goes and meets with Elliot Spitzer, the New York Attorney General, who's investigating PayPal for like violating banking laws or some shit. So he goes on and you know he meets. Apparently, he finds some workaround for regulators. He gives Elliot Spitzer a phone number that <laughs> <laughs> shuts him up. Yeah, there was. You are right. When I heard that, there was no elaboration on how he solved that problem. But considering he's flying Epstein out to dinners in Palo Alto, uh, that might have been a solution. Oh yeah, uh, I know this lady. Her name is Liz Smith. Um, but so, uh, according to the the New Yorker profile, basically what happened with his work at PayPal, he's like, we're going to put out these various fires. I mean, that's another connection is that this guy's funding Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg's campaign manager is Liz Smith, who was uh, caught in a resort hot tub, topless, sucking on Elliot Spitzer's toes. I did not know that. Yeah. Never <laughs> <laughs> rules, though. Good for her. By, like, children. <laughs> Wait, what? Look, we, we, we make a lot of fun of the Buttigieg campaign being robots, <laughs> but I think we should be consistent and give props where it's due. <laughs> That's the kind of Hunter S. Thompson spirit we need to bring to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, but yeah, so according to the New Yorker profile, his time at uh, PayPal, Reed Hoffman's time at PayPal, ends in 2002 or 2001. Basically, the way they describe it is... He's working on these various problems, but in October 2001, with the passage of the Patriot Act, it severely damaged PayPal's second line of business, handling cash tra- cash transactions for gamblers. Oh, wait, I want to issue a correction. He was sucking on her toes. Oh. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you know, that's Anyway, good. carry on. Yeah. <laughs> He's a GGG. It's good to, uh, to be giving. Uh, but so, yes, according to the, the New Yorker, the, uh, the Patriot Act limited PayPal's business for handling cash transactions for gamblers. So they kind of had a crisis. So Reed Hoffman arranged the sale to eBay in um, 2002 or 2000, late 2001, early 2002. Yeah, it turns out their fraud protections were pretty lucrative because it gave them kind of a I mean, this this is ended up being one of those um, 
uh, eBay was used. I, I was looking into this that eBay early on was used for fraud, and so they issued their fraud protections. But what that led to was a lot of freezing of accounts to the point where then a class action lawsuit was brought against them because um, it turns out it's pretty lucrative when you run a payment transfer website to freeze a lot of accounts. But yeah, definitely uh, eBay and PayPal were getting up to some uh, rather shady stuff. It was kind of the Wild West of, you know, uh, sending money through the internet. Banking laws were not very clear, so Reed Hoffman's job was to go and interface with various regulators and competitors and just make them not shut down PayPal. And he did a good enough job that they were able to get themselves bought out by eBay. Well, I mean, they, quote, weren't clear. <laughs> yes. Because they certainly, uh, unquote, weren't followed. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so eBay buys them out, and according to the New Yorker, uh, or he took a six weeks. He took six weeks off after eBay buys out PayPal. Reed Hoffman did, and then um, uh, I, I guess that's the way he tells it: is he took six weeks off, and then saw that social networking wasn't taking into account business networking. So, as the New Yorker describes it, in 2003, for $700,000, he and Mark Pincus, the game developer we talked about earlier, bought the Six Degrees patent, a methodology for constructing social networks. That year, Hoffman officially incorporated a new social network. It was like SocialNet, except this time people would use their real names and focus on their professional lives. He called it LinkedIn. So, he bought the technology for LinkedIn for $700,000. Wait, they paid, they paid someone... For you said the Six Degrees Network, six the Six Degrees, de- the, the patent. Yeah. Someone patented the Kevin Bacon game, <laughs> <laughs> and then he uh, bought that and made it into LinkedIn. I think uh, he's saying that this is like a programming, like a no, no. I mean, that's how LinkedIn works. Concept. Is it tells you like how many degrees separated you are from people in terms of your connections. Yeah, yeah. So they just made an algorithmic version of the Kevin Bacon game. Someone who's not Reed Hoffman did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like people debate what you would do with a time machine, and I think one of the best would be just go back to 1995 and patent every meme that you're familiar with. Could be like the Warren Buffett of everything people talk about on Reddit. Uh, But yeah, so he buys the Six Degrees patent, which is the methodology for constructing social networks that they use to launch LinkedIn. Side note, did you know that Goatsy.cx is now a website that's trying to make a cryptocurrency based around memes? (laughs) And they're trying to find a way to monetize it for meme creators by putting memes on the blockchain. This is real. I made people look at that in high school. It was a good time. You can't find it anymore. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, this is basically how, uh, what, what happened is, you know, you're all familiar with, you got the emails from LinkedIn, uh, he got various people he knew to give, th- uh, him access to their business network, and then he just progressively expanded the business network, and when you join LinkedIn, you can upload your contacts, and if you do, LinkedIn will email spam everyone you know, saying, hey, your friend is on, um, LinkedIn, would you like to network with them on LinkedIn as well? So it, it grows pretty rapidly and it is pretty successful from 2003 onwards. Uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a coworker in like 2012 who, um, I mean, it was a shitty job. And so like he left it and then I saw him again at a birthday party and he's like, oh yeah, man, the whole time I was there, like I was just on LinkedIn like all day. Like, this is the first time I heard about it. it was like 2012. He's like, I was on LinkedIn just all day and I found a job and you know, Oh man, I, I you'll find one too, man. I was like, wherever you are, I do not want to be there. 
Um, but so you know, <laughs> yes, the uh, it's 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 a very interesting business model. But it's you know just Facebook for psychopath networkers. Um, around this time, it's, it's more of just like uh, f- Facebook, where your profile's your resume, right? And ar- and, and also uh, getting that connection number up, and also where you can send a message to uh, Gislaine Maxwell's ex-boyfriend, surviving ex-boyfriend, and ask where she is. <laughs> and he will not reply to me. <laughs> well, doesn't he know you're going to burn him with your professional <laughs> network? You'll never work in Brooklyn podcasting again, buddy. I, uh, not Around the time that he died, I actually tried to find as many people in um, Tara Mar, Gislaine Maxwell's, uh, her, her, her quote unquote charity. Yeah. Um, and I actually managed to like go through a bunch of the LinkedIn profiles of people involved in that. And they were all, you know, upwardly mobile, like, yeah, I'm going to get a charity on my resume. Cause in, um, you know, just very like vapid people. And now it's impossible to find any of that information. Like everyone who is remotely like, uh, connected to that company has wiped any associations <laughs> with it. But right, right before they really knew how, like how deep, in the shit they were uh you could you could find that stuff pretty easily on linkedin hmm. uh i was reading an ft article on an inter oh it's there's an ft article from 2012 interviewing hoffman about linkedin and it starts out with a little like anecdote um apparently uh robin dunbar an evolutionary psychologist has also been drawn into Hoffman's cosmology, F.T. writes. His contribution was to estimate the maximum number of relationships that people are capable of maintaining at any one time, given the size of the human neocortex. The result, known as Dunbar's number, 150. That's the max amount of, like, sort of meaningful human relationships that you can maintain at any given time, according to this this, uh, evolutionary psychologist. And so they go on... While Hoffman says he thinks that's a fair estimate of the number of active relationships, he also believes that it underestimates the much bigger circle of looser connections that the well-organized, internet-connected person can now sustain. He once limited his own online network... You know, people you can make money off of. (laughs) He once limited his own online network to people he had worked with directly, but these days he includes anyone for whom he would be willing to provide a personal introduction, which in his case is thousands of people. It's so weird how how quickly that goes from like <clears throat> something that's it's it's fairly interesting it's like how many relationships is the human mind capable of maintaining at any given moment you know that's like an interesting psychological pursuit and then jumping from that to like okay and uh how does that pertain to networking for like <laughs> boosting your career well yeah and, and so you know we talk about uh linkedin though it should be mentioned so he founds linkedin in 2003 in 2004 he's the guy who puts peter Thiel in contact with mark zuckerberg peter Thiel gives mark i believe half a million dollars he's the first major investor in facebook uh reed hoffman is also a minor investor in facebook and he thought about coming on the board but he wanted to focus on linkedin but he does make a, a good bit of money investing in facebook um, but I, I wanted to kind of mention, you know, so we talk about Reed buys yeah, the technology for LinkedIn uh, for, you know, $700,000. Uh, and we talked about in the New Yorker profile, his job is basically going to these lunch and breakfast and dinner meetings. His job is like going to eat and having these meetings. Well, 
like every Silicon Valley... No, it's making trumped-up cards. <laughs> like every Silicon... That is his only job right now. Like every Silicon Valley startup, when you talk about LinkedIn going from launching in 2003 to selling for, you know, 26 point some billion to Microsoft in 2016, the people who actually did the... Definitely br- not because Microsoft wants to harvest people's data. <laughs> the people who did the brunt of the work for that were engineers and programmers and people putting in crazy hours. And the New Yorker profile only kind of handset that, but they talk about the CEO and um, various impl- various engineers would check the LinkedIn site and uh, they would see that the CEO, the only time that he wasn't on the LinkedIn site was between 3.30 and 4 a.m. And, you know, so this implies, of course, that the CEO that uh, that followed Reed Hoffman was working a lot. But it also implies that the engineers were working a lot because they were checking the site at 3.30 and 4 a.m. to see what's going on. So you have to imagine these people who made him his fortune were burned into the absolute ground, just like every fucking employee in the Valley. Well, yeah, it's like, I mean, if you look at every successful website, you know how when it gets millions of users... It- it doesn't crash and burn into flames. Mm-hmm. That's not because someone had a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shit ton of work. And then the the other uh, workload paragraph from this New Yorker profile, uh, Reed Hoffman travels three or four times a year to China, LinkedIn's fastest growing market, and he is impressed by the Chinese work ethic. He told one conference <laughs> audience about a startup in Beijing that was able to ship its first product in just six months by renting a block of hotel rooms and requiring all employees to live there, taking breaks only to eat, sleep, and exercise. LinkedIn's forced march towards economic growth and the network age continues. Uh, emphasis on forced march. <laughs> the long the long march. You know, it's so to inspiring. LinkedIn. It's so inspiring over there how uh, it's not very sustainable anymore to uh, live in the countryside. And so people are forced into the cities uh, in order to make a living. And in order to survive in the cities, they have to work under borderline slave conditions. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's just amazing what they're able to accomplish over there. It's so inspiring that the closest thing to a labor party in American history is now owned by a guy who admires the fact that Chinese companies <laughs> have hotels where the employees have to live and can only leave to eat, exercise and sleep. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's your Democratic Party. And and I guess with just the time we have left, I want to talk about Jeffrey Epstein and I want to just quickly g- uh, gesture at, you know, what invest in us, the uh, the political action group he set up in 2017. Uh, I want to talk about some of his uh, side hobbies um, real quick as well. Okay, yeah. Uh, such as the uh, Bilderberg Group, <laughs> which <laughs> he is a member of and... Uh, at the risk of joining the ranks of the greats, such as Jesse Ventura, um, uh, Lyndon LaRoche, and uh, uh, Nigel Farage, um, it is interesting how they're, uh, they are actually... I mean, I, I, I wasn't very aware of them until actually just now. Um, I've heard, I'd heard the name, but uh, apparently they have... Uh, annual meetings where they it's some of the most powerful people in the world including high level government officials we've mentioned them before oh, uh, on the rice bin episode like she was she was a member of the builders group for a while oh i don't oh i wasn't on that one was i no oh well i don't listen either when i'm on or off the show <laughs> um they've come up a few times it's 
it, it is fascinating that they have these meetings with high level government officials um, and high level uh, uh, and, you know, some of the richest CEOs, including like Eric Schmidt from Google. And then after these meetings, uh, they have not had a press conference since the 70s. Uh, and then apparently one of the topics of discussion in the 2017 meeting was, quote, the war on information committed by Donald Trump. Uh, another group he's in is... The topic of the meeting was the plot line of Metal Gear Solid 2 <laughs> and how we can make that a reality. Uh He's also in the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, a nonprofit, yeah. uh, a nonprofit think tank, and its board members include uh, David Robinstein, mm-hmm. the co-founder of the Carlisle Group, oh. uh, Jamie Missick, the CEO of Kissinger Associates, which is Henry Kissinger's geopolitical consulting firm, oh. um, and she's also a twenty-year she had a twenty-year career in the CIA. Uh, Thad W. Allen, who is the senior executive advisor of Booz Allen Hamilton the uh, uh, group or the company that was being rented out by the CIA to spy on people. Uh, let's see. Lawrence D. Fink, the chairman and CEO of BlackRock, and then also Timothy Geithner. And then former board members include Madeline Albright, Colin Powell, and David Rockefeller. Hmm. And so he uh, he's a member of that group if you're looking for another CIA connection to Pete Buttigieg. Uh, it's a very... Uh, yeah, I mean, Pete, very deep state. Pete has a couple different Bilderberg alumni. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that was Bilderberg. This is the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah, please don't look too much into the fact that Osama bin Laden's brother was at a Carlisle Group conference in D.C. <laughs> on the day of 9 <laughs> 11. Uh, but yes, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, uh, if you are a conspiracy person, you might have read a lot about those things, that this guy linked to Jeffrey Epstein and running the Democratic Party seems to be involved in. And uh, if you're not a conspiracy person, they do both uh, state outright that their goal is to spread global capitalism. <laughs> so like, you don't even have to be a conspiracy person to just read what they say their goals are. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing with these organizations. It's like, clearly they are networking for the people who basically run the government and business in the uh, Western world. Yeah, it's Illuminati LinkedIn. Spreading global right. capitalism. So it's like, I guess you become conspiracy theorist when like, you know, I guess there was a guy who protested, I think, the Council on Foreign Relations with like a sign about how they did 9-11, which may be, but we can at least (laughs) say it's a networking conference for the powerful. Unfortunately, that's most people's gateway into looking at the Bilderberg group is like just through like yeah, uh, the, the nutty people or like the yeah. people who are like, you know, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. And it's like, well, it can weaken them. But Saudi Arabia uh, <laughs> put a lot of money into that. I mean, you look up, you know, if you look up like a nine hour YouTube video on Bilderberg when you're like 15 years old, that's how it usually goes. It is true. It is entirely convenient for them to basically associate the word Bilderberg group with conspiracy. So like, if, you know, if it's only the prison planet Alex Jones types, then anybody who hears build up a group is like, oh, shut up. You know, I'm not a psychopath like you. But it prevents you from just looking at the simple fact that there is a networking operation between the most powerful people on Earth. And we don't really know what they're talking about there, but clearly they're coordinating. Well, it's like, you know, the that thing in the 90s where um, the government would kind of like wink at uh, UFO conspiracies as a way of kind of covering up things that would look weird in the sky that were really just uh, classified uh, aircraft testing. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, 
I wanted to talk a bit about just kind of how these hundreds of millions of dollars investing in us have been spent. Because, again, from this uh, Vanity Fair profile I quoted earlier, and also from uh, Max Blumenthal's reporting in the Gray Zone, it, just two interesting examples. Um, so, uh, Reed Hoffman, and again, uh, Dimitri, uh, Dimitri Melhorn, who's the person who has he has running investing in us, his kind of political arm that's spending hundreds of millions. Um, it, it invested 750000 in American Engagement Technologies, which was a digital firm run by Mikey Dickerson, a former Google engineer who worked for the Obama administration and knew someone who eventually connected him to investing in us. And this is kind of what we've been talking about with Tara McGowan. She was, you know, a former Clinton person, Hillary Clinton person, who had connections and got Obama's campaign manager, David Plouffe, on her board. So it's like once you can link to these um, uh, uh, Clinton and Obama and, people. And she did it without his knowledge or consent. <laughs> once you can link to these Clinton or Obama people, or in this case, this guy, uh, Mikey Dickerson, is also a former Google engineer. Once you can link to them, then you can link to their fundraising networks, all these Silicon Valley people who fund it. Barack Obama. So he's able to link to them and get $750,000. And we know he apparently paid $100,000 to a subcontractor uh, who created Facebook pages posing as a conservative Alabamans to spread fake news and encourage Republicans to support a rival candidate during the um, Roy Moore, Doug Jones Senate race in Alabama. Um, and, uh, you know, you might not particularly care about that. Apparently, Dimitri. Um, Apparently Dimitri Melhorn <laughs> Apparently Dimitri Melhorn actually gave a quote where he said their goal was to uh, uh, imitate the the Russian um, imitate the Russian tactics in the uh, 2016 election mm-hmm. which is it, it, it's such like uh, it, they're, they're both telling on themselves. And it's it shows that they're getting high on their own supply because right. it's 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 clearly they're they've not only bought into this conspiracy that if you you know uh, put a hundred thousand dollars into Facebook ads you can buy the president, uh, which is what a bunch of people seem to believe happened in 2016. But um, like they not only believe that, but then they're like, okay, but we can use it for good. Mm. <laughs> right, and, and so good the- being third way Democratic candidates. Yeah, yeah. Right. Our version of good. So to quote from Max Blumenthal's piece, uh, Dimitri Melhorn uh, told the Washington Post that through projects like the group News for Democracy they invested in, he aimed to, quote, mirror the tactics of the, the, tactics of the Russian Internet Research Agency troll farm. And, uh, you know, he talks about in the Vanity Fair piece talks about how these groups that they were funding, you know, putting 750000 or whatever else into, they would set up these Facebook pages, which would... Um, uh, Wait, troll farms? They were actually paying people to, like, you know, be uh, Thomas Real American 5385. Basically, yes. To talk about Roy Moore as though he needed more to take him <laughs> down in <laughs> as that As if you didn't have election. enough reasons yeah. to, for Roy Moore to just take himself down. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the Blumenthal piece talks about... Sure, he's a pedophile, but did you hear that he said he had foot sores to get out of the Vietnam War? 
So the Blumenthal piece talks about News for Democracy. What they would do is, um, this group that Reid Hoffman is investing in, they would uh, create community Facebook pages initially focused on sports, Christianity, patriotism, and other topics uh, with the goal of being generating interest from right-wing voters. And then as the election approached, they would switch to promoting Be- uh, Beto O'Rourke or uh, attacking various Republican candidates. And, you know, they spread this thing about uh, Roy Moore. They encouraged people to, to vote for a write-in candidate uh you know a republican wait where was the beto o'rourke thing coming from Uh, i'm not sure but they were pushing beto o'rourke for some reason oh uh, like in a senate campaign against ted cruz i guess so yes this is like too clever by half like like all of this like the much simpler solution is just like run a candidate who supports medicare for all i mean he's he's basically (laughs) just doing (laughs) to defeat republicans he he's basically just doing the thing where virgil texas found a a right-wing facebook group and turned it into um like gay love for hillary clinton right but like when you have hundreds of millions of dollars to throw around you can just kind of do that and you know he got exposed uh, yeah <laughs> my point is that virtual texas didn't need that <laughs> he got exposed by the new york times he apologized they came up with some whole story of like we wrote this guy a check and then we didn't ask him what he was doing with it you know a startup culture is messy you invest in all these little things and then you don't know which one's going to work which one's not going to I wonder if they used that uh, another time. The Blumenthal piece also talks about Tara McGowan, of course, uh, invented the app that crashed and burned in Iowa. Uh, McGowan... She had nothing to do with it. Um, she was she was actually having a nap at the time. Uh, McGowan, uh, they, they founded these Facebook pages like the Courier Newsroom, a seemingly journalistic initiative that appeared to take an overly partisan role with time. Um, Courier News had opened local news pages on Facebook with unassuming names like the Virginia Dog Wood or the Arizona's Copper Courier. After seeding the pages with folksy local news stories, Courier Newsroom bombards users with pro-democratic political messaging. And so, you know, I guess that's a long way to go, and you might not particularly care about them spreading fake news against, you know, pedophile Roy Moore or whatever, but you have to imagine that if they're deploying these tactics against Republicans, they will do the same thing against Bernie or any leftist who is a threat to their wealth and their way of life. And they would probably, it would save them a lot of money, even, to just run, to run a candidate who is actually worth a damn against Roy Moore. I'm still not desensitized to the just blatant irony of... Uh, paying a bunch of money to run, quote, pro-democratic messages. <laughs> well, my theory of the establishment Democratic Party is there is two wings. There's the demonic pedophile wing, and then there's the consultant grifter wing. So you have all these people where it's like one of the demonic pedophiles is going around throwing hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're like, how do I get in on that? I'm just going to put together a slide deck and say, we'll run fucking analytic Facebook ads and fake news and do whatever else to generate, you know, controversy. And it's like these grifters, they're so reliant on these job opportunities that they want a million Democratic candidates in the race. They want all this stuff. So it was because the pedophiles and the consultants could not come together that Bernie Sanders was able to emerge from a crowded field and that's the real story of 2020 i think it's because the thorax of that butterfly with those two wings um got destroyed in 2016 (laughs) um but i guess uh to kind of close out we'll just kind of go through the reed hoffman jeffrey epstein uh connections because we've talked a lot about pete Buttigieg, who of course you know reed hoffman has backed among others Uh, reed hoffman of course we've we've beat this point to the ground here uh funded the software that destroyed the iowa caucuses uh the app 
Uh, Reed Hoffman is pretty intimately connected to Jeffrey Epstein. Just according to a, a piece in Vox, uh, Vox Recode, um, uh, Joy Ito was the former head of MIT Media Lab. He since had to resign because they were taking all this money from Jeffrey Epstein and, you know, uh, very strange connections there. Um, Reed Hoffman gave an interview to Axios where he said, by agreeing to participate in any fundraising activity where Epstein was present, I helped to repair his reputation and perpetuate injustice. For this, I am deeply regretful. Um, and then Hoffman has kind of thrown uh, Joy Ito under the bus, again, the former head of MIT Media Lab, saying that because Ito vouched for him, uh, said he had cleared MIT's media vetting process, that's why Reed Hoffman trusted Epstein and, you know, flew him out, invited Epstein to this Palo Alto dinner in 2015, uh, again, after Epstein had been convicted convicted on child prostitution charges this dinner with mark zuckerberg elon musk peter Thiel. uh elon musk introduces epstein to mark zuckerberg at this this dinner um again at reed hoffman's invitation uh but so reed hoffman throws the head of mit media labs under the bus for saying he vouched for epstein but uh, according to the same vox piece in july 2016 ito uh, sought advice from Reed Hoffman about whether to allow Epstein to attend a conference, perhaps the announcement of the Media Lab's director's fellows, with, quote, lots of people who, quote, may see him and know he's involved, unquote. Um, they don't know what Hoffman actually advised Ito there. So the head of MIT Media Lab was emailing him uh, and saying these quotes about people might see Epstein at the MIT Media Lab and knowing know he's involved. And uh, whatever Hoffman sent back, we don't know for sure, but we know Epstein showed up and was uh, encouraged to attend and apparently even got this award from the MIT Media Lab in 2016. Um, He's like, how devastated would you be if we invited the pedophile? Mm -hmm. Right. And this is the MIT report that looked at the MIT uh, Epstein connection. Uh, according to the same report, in July 2013, Epstein visited MIT camp the MIT campus to meet with Reed Hoffman and others, and Hoffman continued to be consulted on Epstein matters. Um, and then there's a business insider profile that uh, goes through it. Uh, Joy Ito, the... Um, MIT Media Labs director was invited to this August 2015 dinner in Palo Alto with Elon Musk, Epstein, Mark Zuckerberg, Peter Thiel. Um, and the other thing about that that I found very concerning was in late August. No, uh, I don't find any of it concerning. In late <laughs> August. From the Business Insider profile, the LinkedIn co-founder sprang to the defense of Joy Ito, then the director of MIT Media Labs, who reportedly concealed donations from the convicted multi-millionaire sex offender. It happened in a testy email exchange that was revealed by the writer Anand Gurhadis, who's, uh, he wrote this book about um, denouncing billionaire charities and uh, these sorts of things. Um, but he he was writing on this. He was apparently part of this MIT Media Lab. Oh, he made Jonathan Chait look like a dipshit on TV a couple days ago. Right. Yeah, he, he seems like a decent enough guy, at, at least from this exchange. Uh, in this email exchange that he had with the head of MIT Media Labs, um, he was on the selection jury. He's also a Warren guy, though, so let's not get let's not <laughs> suck his dick too hard. Uh, so Anand was on the selection jury for an award given by MIT Media Labs. Um, 
Gerhardus, shaken by the revelations of Ito's ties to Epstein and on the verge of resignation, wrote to Hoffman, Reed Hoffman, Ito, and his fellow jurors on the selection committee requesting that Ito's correspondence with Epstein be made public. Ito, who not only cultivated Epstein's patronage of the MIT Media Lab, but also took more than a million dollars for, for his own personal investments from Jeffrey Epstein, did not respond. But Reed Hoffman... Doesn't that mean he just took a million dollars from Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> Uh, but Reed Hoffman Yeah, I just took a million dollars for my bank <laughs> That was for investing Yeah Yes it's, You're right It does sound like slightly less bad If you say, I took it for investments Yeah, for personal <laughs> invest Like As opposed to, I just put it in yeah. my bank account yeah, At least it's yeah, At least it's earning something Yeah I invested in a sick fucking gaming console Look I'm not some kind of piece of shit who just lets pedophile money sit in a checking account. He swivels am, around in his game chair. His I am getting chair. a 6 to 7% return per year on any pedophile money I accept. Uh, but so uh, Ito did not respond to this email uh, asking him to turn over his Epstein correspondent, but Reed Hoffman owner of the Democrat, uh, significant equity stake owner of the Democratic Party, LinkedIn billionaire, did respond to this email. Uh, he, he accused Gerhardus of being dramatic, according to the author. Uh, quote, your responses frankly make me concerned about your ability to serve on an awards committee, unquote. Reed Hoffman wrote about this guy complaining that this pedophile was involved in MIT Media Labs, this uh, serial... Uh, multi-millionaire pedophile and this is all just like do they, do, do they just have like an email template that they share with hollywood for like you know that just the epstein and the weinstein emails they just send out the same form response and they all you don't have what it takes it. to be on an award show they all should know about his history I mean, yeah he pled guilty in 2008 yes yeah so but by this point it's public knowledge but he was rehabbed by a bunch of different people and honestly had i known uh how deep in reed hoffman was with jeffrey epstein i would not have used his platform to message Gislaine maxwell's ex-boyfriend asking where he is <laughs> or asking where she is honestly shame on you oh i mean for my own safety <laughs> When Gerhardus said he would step down if Ito didn't, Hoffman reportedly accused the writer of making it, quote, all about you, unquote, uh, saying that he was being, you know, dramatic about Epstein. Hoffman remains quote, close to MIT Media Lab and funded a 250000 no-strings-attached prize known as the Disobedience Award. Um, the uh, principles that form selection criteria for the award are, quote, nonviolence, creativity, courage, and taking responsibility for one's own actions. Uh, in 2017, the MIT Media Lab gave one of its honorary orbs a replica of its Disobedience Award to Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, they've denied that this was a disobedience award, but it is the exact same trophy they give out for the disobedience award. So they gave Jeffrey Epstein an orb. Yes. An orb? Yes. A ceremonial orb. Mm -hmm. For disobedience. <laughs> cool. Huh. It's and it's it part of why they gave it to him because he's like taking he was taking responsibility for his actions. Exactly. Creativity, courage. Uh, Nonviolence. Where's that orb now? It was uh, used to fucking strangle him. <laughs> Is that it, the orb that Trump was touching? You can you can twist the head and fiber wire comes out. <laughs> 
Yeah, you guys you guys saw that sixty minutes thing where they showed like the autopsy footage of Jeffrey Epstein and like they they showed the ligature that he supposedly hung himself with and they're like it's like just this bed sheet and it's kind of like wide and then they show the mark on his neck and it's clearly from an extent from like a wire from like a cord and at the same time like you'd think well they wouldn't have any cords in his jail cell but apparently it was full of like uh like a toasters and shit yeah and, and then i guess final irony the next year after epstein gets this award in 2017 the mit media labs disobedience award goes to the creator of the me too hashtag <laughs> so you know and it's just one of those things where it's like why is reed hoffman flying this guy out to this dinner and introducing him to all these other silicon valley billionaire assholes that he's known you know his whole life and given the startup capital from mark zuckerberg known peter Thiel since they were in college um, you know, clearly close with Elon Musk as well as all these other people. And he's the one who's bringing Jeffrey Epstein into that circle, defending him in email chains uh, to uh, for his involvement with MIT Media Labs. It's very disturbing that this is a power player in the Democratic Party who's also backing Pete Buttigieg. Well, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that he also has connections to massively powerful groups with intelligence connections. Um, <laughs> and foreign policy think tanks. Yes. Uh, like we don't even have time to get into like all the different fucking rabbit holes we could go on, but I wanted to note that, uh, Reed Hoffman is on what is called the defense innovation board, which according to the department of defense, the DIB is one of several independent federal advisory committees, which advises the secretary of defense on proposals, uh, for, you know, uh, optimizing the department of defense. Uh, Reed Hoffman sits on this board with, uh, former Google CEO. Eric Schmidt and a uh, pop scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson. No. <laughs> uh, but mentally, I'm folding my arms in my head right now <laughs> and smiling knowingly. But I, I guess I just wanted to, to close out my contribution to this episode with w one last little bit from that New Yorker profile. They talk about in the decades after the Second World War, people thought about the economy. And what if what if every time? You see Neil deGrasse Tyson on TV and he does one of those like slow crossing his arms and smiling like what's going on in his head is, yeah, I know what happens in that temple on the island. <laughs> the only way you're going to see the ritual is through our spaceship of the imagination. Before the orgy, we slaughter five billion water bears. It is a test of our power, for they are some of the most resilient life forms on Earth. They have like a cutesy like animation of the sundial pointing towards the number nine, and then Seth MacFarlane's doing the voice of one of the nine-year-olds getting a stake driven through her heart. <laughs> we don't know why, but, you know, he, he wanted to do the voices. Yeah. Uh but I guess I wanted to close out my contribution to this with, you know, again, this is a guy who's put hundreds of millions of dollars into an independent establishment business Democratic Party. And, you know, besides it, the Epstein links are terrifying. But even if you uh, say that's all bullshit, his regular views that he admits to are terrifying enough because the New Yorker profile, it talks about after the Second World War, people thought about the economy in terms of corporations, government agencies, labor unions, and so on. People would work for a corporation, stay there their entire lives, and, you know, retire with a pension. Well, Americans thought about it that way. Yes, uh, people in America. And Reed Hoffman has essentially said uh, in various profiles that 
we're looking backwards if we try to go back to that. He's saying in this uh, New Yorker profile, quote, I'm trying, to get, <laughs> I'm trying to get politicians to understand that solving the pro- this problem is about facilitation of a network as opposed to, he says this sarcastically, quote, the New Deal. Uh, he has a soaring optimism about the power of his model to make life better for everybody. And what he's essentially talking about is he wants to rebuild the American middle class by getting everybody on LinkedIn, by making every single middle class person a quote unquote entrepreneur of their own network. So his idea, he writes these books about, you know, people should stay at a company like a maximum or a minimum of four years and then keep all the contacts from that company on their LinkedIn and go to the next company. And everybody's become their own little entrepreneur who has their Rolodex of LinkedIn connections. And this is how we'll rebuild the middle class by getting everybody on LinkedIn and making every single fucking worker an entrepreneur. I mean, his his vision for the future is literally that everyone has his mental illness. <laughs> That's his utopia. Like Small business density has historically not been associated with economic growth. Right. <laughs> like all of the... Uh, not saying, not defending massive multinational corporations or anything, but like just his model of... Uh, development is like on just already bad footing. Right. And he talks about, you know, uh, you'll put a lot of effort into uh, maintaining and making your personal network very extensive because it's, you know, vital uh, to, to your ability to command wages in the market. And that's the entire title of the, the New Yorker piece is the network man. He says that American workers should go from the organization man or the company man to the network man. And, you know, this is for, I think, most people who aren't brain damaged psychopaths, a terrifying vision of the future where you are just perpetually updating your LinkedIn and ass kissing and networking and, and being being expected to totally pick up and move every three to four years, even if you don't want to. Yep. And yeah. also to have no power against massive uh, corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's he's. It, it, the reality of what he's pitching is, of course, the exact opposite, where it's like you don't have more power to negotiate your wages when you're more atomized. You have way less power uh, by becoming atomized. And that's that's ultimately the goal for people like him. Hmm. It must have been like a real thrill when you got that Jeffrey Epstein wants to connect with you on LinkedIn email, though. <laughs> that's when you know you're really moving in the LinkedIn power networks, the private server they set up. I'm just like wondering, like now that I sent that, is it like now is every resume that I try to send on LinkedIn <laughs> just going to get spiked? It'd be so great if like two years from now, Andy can't find a job and he doesn't understand why <laughs> he's on like the fucking LinkedIn Epstein blacklist. <laughs> uh, well, these are the people running the American economy and your Democratic Party. So uh, vote for Bernie Sanders and let's get this done. And this has been Grubstakers. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. See you next week.